All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. Hello, YouTube. Great to see you. Instagram Live. People signing on. Great to see you, Cassandra, the first one. Good morning, Kylie Carlson. Hey, now that you're in Australia and I'm in Australia, you need to come visit me. <laughs> All right, welcome, everybody. Sorry I am a few minutes late this morning. The warm shower just felt a little too good this morning, and uh, it occurred to me, wait a minute, I, I think I'm actually, I think my schedule's a little bit tight. So I'd, I'd gotten up, and I'd read the chapter through once, read it through a second time, and I kind of felt like I had a lot of time, but I didn't have a lot of time, but the shower was feeling really good, and I think I was just kind of lost in thought. Has that ever happened to you? You get in the shower, and you just start thinking about something, and then you suddenly go, wait a minute, I'm late for work. Or, I've got an appointment. Well, that's what happened to me this morning. So, sorry I'm a few minutes late. Welcome to OT with DA. OT is the Old Testament. DA is David Ashrick. That's me. And we are on a roughly 75-day reading journey through a large portion of the Old Testament. We are using as our textbook, Patriarchs and Prophets, written by Ellen White, published in 1890. And it's an amazing book. And today's chapter is no exception. Big chapter today titled The Ark Taken by the Philistines, chapter 57. Great to see everybody signing on. Welcome. Hello, Court Coach Warrenell. Hello, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. So again, apologies, I'm a few minutes late. Wasn't the plan. Um, if we don't go too late, I even brought my guitar up because there's a, a song that I love. It's probably my favorite hymn. And um, if we have time and I don't go too long, I will sing for you my favorite verse from my favorite hymn, because it fits in so well with today's uh, chapter. So I don't know. We'll see, how we see, we'll see how we go. We'll see if we have enough time. We're in chapter 57, titled The Ark Taken by the Philistines. Remember, as soon as I'm done here, I have to race out the door and go teach at Arise today. Uh, yesterday went amazing. We're in the book of Acts. We're having a great time. I hope you've had a great day. Violetta, I FaceTimed with briefly this morning. She is um, she's getting on a plane in a few short hours, and she will arrive about 30 hours from now, 26 hours from now, something like that. And I can't wait to see her. I'm so, I'm so enthusiastic. Also, big news, Tomorrow, we will have the first of our Australian guests. Tomorrow, and uh, he'll be with us for chapters 58 and 59. Um, a wonderful man, a student of Scripture. His name is Pastor Quinton Betteridge, and he was my associate pastor for a short time. He was the outreach uh, coordinator for Arise uh, a couple, two years ago, the last time we did Arise. And then... I'm happy to say that he is the person that replaced me at the Kingscliff Church, the church that I pastored for the better part, well, seven years, really, and uh, a lovely man, uh, somebody that I have a lot of respect for, and again, a real student of Scripture, and I asked him, hey, Quentin, is there any way you could find time in your busy schedule as a pastor, and they've just been through the floods here, and uh, it's, it's really the church. The, the, the local church here at Kingscliff, one of the local churches, has literally been a hub of hundreds of volunteers and, and thousands of people coming through the church. I, I think that's not an exaggeration. 
who needed help, distribution of goods, um, services. They're still in there even now, actually. It's kind of winding down. But every day that I've been in there teaching at Arise, there have been um, people from the, I don't, I don't know all the language here, the nomenclature, but basically the people that help people in times of natural disaster. And uh, they're there, and yeah, awesome. The church is just really a hub, a hive of activity. And a lot of that, frankly, has happened under Quentin's leadership. And so when I asked Quentin, look, I know you're really busy. It would be awesome if you could come and do at least one of the OT with DA sessions. And I said, tell me which chapters you want to do. He said he would do two. So he'll be with us, God willing, tomorrow and the next day, chapters 58 and 59. So thank you, Quentin, for coming. I've got some others lined up. My good friend, Robbie, my good friend, Boris, my good friend, Sam, um, and maybe Luke Halmai has come. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're running out of chapters, right? Today we're in chapter 57. There's only 73 chapters in the book. So we are right down toward the end of this book. And so I told them yesterday, several of them, I said, look, if you want to do this, if you want to get in on the action, you got to let me know. You got to let me know quickly. Um, so by all means, um, tune in in the coming days because it's going to be great. And it's not going to be just David. I'm going to have some of my favorite people in the world, some real students of Scripture, and I'm looking forward to having them here. I'm really excited that you're here. Welcome to everybody that's tuned up, uh, tuned in, signed on. Um, we're in chapter 57 today. Let's pray. This is a big chapter. It covers a ton of material, right? A lot of biblical material here. We're going through, let's see, 1 Samuel chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, five chapters. I read them this morning. And um, maybe I should open to those right now, just so I've got them handy. There we are. I love it when you turn basically right to it. There it is. 1 Samuel chapter 3 is where we'll start. I'll, <clears throat> excuse me. Also, <laughs> also, I know I'm way behind on putting up my notes. And the plan was to sort of catch up on some of that, take those pictures uh, yesterday. But I ended up having a physical therapy appointment yesterday with, with a dear friend and brother. He's a dude, um, Jono. And so went in, he had a look at my right knee. He says it's stable. He says everything is good there, but I just have some inflexibility in my right hip that's manifesting in my knee. And he put me through the paces and did some massage. And it was amazing. The guy is like a magician when it comes to the mechanics of the human body. And uh, I went in and I felt like my knee was at about 60 to 75%. And uh, I came out and I was like, whoa, my, my knee is fixed. And so anyway, he gave me some exercises to do. So the reason I said that was, first of all, I'm just rejoicing that my knee feels like an actual knee this morning. My right knee, my, my right knee feels like my left knee. Hallelujah. But also because um, he gave me some great exercises to do. He said, you're going to be fine. Do these exercises. Everything's going to be okay. Woo. Hallelujah. I hope he's right. And I think he is. Um, but that's what ended up taking up a large part of my afternoon yesterday, and so I wasn't able to catch up on the journals. That's coming today, God willing. I don't have anything in my afternoon, so I'm going to literally finish teaching, eat lunch, come over here, and get right to work on my notes, and I've got, um, actually, I've got quite a little bit that I have to catch up on today, so today's that day. Uh, let's get started with uh, prayer, and then we're into chapter 57, big chapter, long chapter, involved chapter. Tragic chapter, right? There's a lot of bad news in this chapter. A little bit of good news, but a lot of bad news. And uh, I really enjoyed the chapter. It was one that I read through once, read it through a second time, had time to read it through a third time, 
but I took a shower that was too long. There you have it. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you and praise you. You're so good to us. Be with us now as we turn our attention to chapter 57, the ark taken by the Philistines. Uh, Lord, this is a dark chapter. It's a difficult chapter, a tragic chapter. And Father, right in the heart of this chapter, this little boy is going to be born, and his name is going to be Ichabod, which means inglorious or without glory. And Lord, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be people in whom there is no glory, no glory shining from you. Lord, we know that we don't have light of our own as such, but like the moon, your light can reflect off of us. And so, Father, please, we don't want to be a cold, dark stone. We want to be warmed by the rays of your light and glory. And so be with us now as we turn our attention. And Father, may this chapter be a warning to us. May it be uh, a chapter that we take very seriously in our hearts. And Lord, may we also savor the glimpses that, of good news that are in this chapter. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 57. Quick, quick drink of water, and let's get into this. Um, first of all, as I've already said, this chapter covers a significant amount of material, right? Uh, let's just quickly itemize. I didn't write these down. I will in my journal later. But first of all, we open up with the Lord calling Samuel. He thinks it is Eli, and it's the Lord. And this is uh, Samuel's, the beginning of Samuel's commissioning as a prophet, right? And by the end of the chapter, he's going to be installed as a judge. So this is absolutely remarkable, priest, prophet, and judge. And maybe at the very end of the chapter, we'll talk a little bit about why it's so significant that we have this consolidation of these three offices. I mean, remember Eli, who in many ways Samuel is replacing, was a priest and a judge, uh, Samuel is that, but he's not only a priest and a judge, you add to that the prophetic office. And uh, we'll talk hopefully a little bit about that consolidation. So that's how the chapter opens up. Then uh, we move to the, the uh, desire and the, the efforts of Israel to go to war with the Philistines. Um, they are soundly defeated in battle. They get this idea, we'll bring the ark, they bring the ark. They're defeated even uh, more soundly and 30,000 people die. The ark is taken by the Philistines when the news that the ark has been taken and that Israel has suffered a terrible defeat, including the death of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, when that reaches Eli, the high priest, he can't believe it. He falls off his chair, he breaks his neck, and he dies. Right at this same time, the wife of Phinehas, who realizes that her husband has died and also or been killed, also that the ark has been taken, she's giving birth. She dies, and in the process of dying and giving birth simultaneously, she names the child Ichabod, which is the glory has departed. I mean, tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, just layer upon layer. Uh, then the Philistines unwisely take the ark, put it into, they kind of shuffle it around between different locations in Philistia. They put it in the uh, temple of Dagon. Uh, they are smitten with a curse. They're like, yeah, the ark is not working out for us like we thought it would. We thought it would give us power. We thought it would sort of uh, combined with the power of our gods and Israel's gods. Everything's going to go great. This was not an uh, uncommon practice in the ancient world. When you'd conquered a people, you took the holy pieces of furniture or their idols or their other things. You brought it into your temple as a symbol of sort of the consolidation of 
divine power, but also that your God had conquered their God. That doesn't go so well for the Philistines, as we will see. So they send the ark back. The ark arrives back in Israel at a place called Beth Shemesh. And uh, then the Israelites unwisely, anyway, anyway, I'm getting into too much detail here. The ark arrives back. Samuel uh, comes out. There's this large gathering. He's installed as a judge in Israel. There's a final battle. And at the end of that battle, um, Samuel raises up a stone that he calls an Ebenezer, which means a stone of help. So it's a lot of material, but it's material that, that flows together and fits together really well. And you can see why Ellen White put all this material together in one chapter, because these stories make the most sense when this follows this, follows this, follows this, follows this. When they all go together in a sequence, it's able to make sense of everything that's happening. And so a lot of information, a big, long chapter. Let's get into this. Um, so because I just sort of summarized a lot of that there, I'm, I might not read a ton at the beginning, but there are some real high points that I want to get to. In fact, this chapter is a chapter that has an all-time statement. I think we're up to, again, like 10 all-time statements. I found one in here that I was like, wow, that's perfect. Perfectly said, perfectly communicated. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so the way that the chapter opens up is that, that Samuel is, uh, you know, sleeping somewhere in or very near the sanctuary of God. He, he hears, um, a voice and he thinks it's the voice of Eli calling him. And so he goes to Eli and says, yes, you know, master, what can I do? I didn't call you. Happens a second time, happens a third time. Finally, Eli discerns what's happening here. And, uh, he says, oh, this is the voice of God. And then Eli immediately has this sort of sense, right? He, he, there's this portent. He realizes, ooh, this, if I've been bypassed, if I've been overlooked, and God is now speaking straight to Samuel rather than to me, he intuits that this is some message of doom and of woe upon him and his house, which he would have known. And he would have been living um, under significant guilt, under significant shame, because again, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who he indulged, that was our word yesterday, indulgent, he's not checked them, he's not rebuked them, he has given them free reign, and so he knows that the penny's going to drop, and that at some point, God is going to very likely issue a judgment on his house. And so when Samuel receives this one, two, three times, he says, ah, this is the moment. And so he says, the next time, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant hears, um, God speaks to him again, and he says, Samuel, Samuel, and then he speaks to him, and he gives them this basically message of doom for Eli and his house. And the next day, you know, Samuel's kind of tiptoeing around. He doesn't want to see Eli because he doesn't want to give this message of doom. He doesn't want to communicate this bad news to what was effectively like an adoptive father, right? Because he's been left there by Hannah and Elkanah. Uh, we already talked yesterday about how this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not very intuitive. I think you could say it's counterintuitive that you would give Samuel into the hands of somebody who's already shown that he is basically delinquent in the raising of children. And yet, this is the way that God works. It's the way that God answered Hannah's prayer. And it's the way that God kind of, as we said, answers Eli's prayer for a second chance. And so he then tells him this, uh, prophecy of doom, this message of doom, and Eli's only response is, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. I'm on page 720 now, and I just want to read a little bit of that there, paragraph right at the top, this is 583 of the original, yet Eli, 
That's how it begins. Yet Eli did not manifest the fruits of true repentance. He confessed his guilt, but he failed to renounce the sin. Okay, the renouncing of sin is what is known as repentance. Literally, the word repentance in the New Testament, metanoia, to change your mind, to turn, right? So so repentance is not just an acknowledgement of sin or even a confession of sin. Repentance is you're going this way, you're going this way, you're going this way, and then now all of a sudden you change your mind such that you're going this way, you're you're going back. It's a reversal of course. And so, yes, he acknowledges, you know, he says, this is from the Lord, but there's no repentance. And repentance is central to this whole chapter, as we will see. The idea of repentance, the idea of not only the acknowledgement of sin, the acknowledgement of rebellion, but a turning from it with your whole heart, that's what this chapter is all about. That is this chapter. Jumping down a little bit further in that same paragraph, much might have been done in those years to redeem the failures of the past, but the aged priest took no effective measures to correct the evils that were polluting the sanctuary of the Lord and leading thousands in Israel to ruin. Because as we talked about yesterday, the influence, the influence of the priests who were the educators, who were the intercessors. She continues, the forbearance of God caused Hophni and Phinehas to harden their hearts and become still bolder in transgression. Two times in this paragraph, she uses the word neglect. He neglected. So if you would have gone to Eli and asked him questions about his sons, about the raising of children, he would have given you all the right answers. So it's not that he didn't know, and it's not that he didn't have a desire to do the right thing or to behave in a fatherly way, a godly way toward his children. It's just that he neglected it. He was indulgent. He was acquiescent. He was he was yielding, right? And by the way, I guess we could say that not unlike Aaron, who was yielding, that, that word is used over and over again with regard to Aaron's character. He yielded, he acquiesced, and it almost makes you wonder if there's not some sense in which the high priestly office is one in which, you know, you're just seeing so many people with all of their sins and all of their struggles and all of their failures that at some level you have to be the high priest that sympathizes, that understands, yes, that's all true. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus Christ is a high priest who can sympathize with our infirmities. But there's, there's a difference between sympathizing with the sinner and sympathizing with the sin. And I wonder if it's more than just a, an unhappy coincidence that both uh, Eli here in the high priestly office and Aaron formerly in the high priestly office, the original high priest, the archetypal high priest, both of them had sons that were, that were smitten, that were struck by the Lord in large part because of the yielding, sympathizing, can we say indulgent, even in the case of Aaron, I think we can, posture that they took toward their sons. Again, I think this is more than an unhappy coincidence. I think something else is going on here. So she, she uses the word neglect twice. You know, he, he just wasn't inclined to cross his sons. He wasn't inclined to be at, at cross purposes with them, to be at odds with them. And so right in the middle there, she says, the people of the surrounding nations also, who were not ignorant of the iniquities openly practiced in Israel, became still bolder in their idolatry and crime. And this is the key. Right, this is the key. You might remember going all the way back to the chapter on Balak when he hires Balaam, and Balaam had thought that Israel would just be a ragtag band, a motley crew of sort of roughly assembled, you know, shepherds turned slaves. But when he arrived there and he saw the order of the camp and the cleanliness of the camp and the godliness of the camp, he was intimidated. 
he was he was like, whoa, this is a totally different thing. Well, once you begin to lose that holiness, you lose that connection with Yahweh, and you just become like the other nations, well, then the other nations don't fear you. They don't fear your God, and the distinction or the peculiarity between us and them begins to dissolve, and that's what she says is happening here, right? As the Philistines and the other nations in the area thought, well, they're like us. They practice what we practice. They live how we live. There's not much of a differentiation. By the way, the word holy, which I think I've mentioned before, but if you didn't know, the word holy just means different or other or unusual. So the word holy here would mean they're different than the other nations. They're different than the other tribes. Their God, Yahweh, is different than the other gods. He's not like them. But when that difference is lost and begins to dissolve, and as we're going to see in this chapter, it dissolves to such a degree that the Israelites actually begin to relate to the ark like it's an idol, right? So as that difference dissolves and the other nations around notice, they're not afraid of Israel, they're not afraid of Israel's God, and this is one of the real crimes and tragedies here with regards to the influence of Hophni and Phinehas and of Israel generally. So she makes that point. So Israel gets this idea, hey, let's go, you know, smite the Philistines. Um, there's no indication in the text that they're doing this under the unction of God or the command of God as they were with Joshua, where they were moving, you know, step by step um, under the, the banner of Yahweh, the pillar of cloud and the, and the fire, and they're moving and the ark was out in front of them. There's just no indication of that here. This is just like, hey, let's go up to war against the Philistines and they are soundly defeated, right? They are soundly, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So they get this idea, whoa, we'll go get the ark. Okay, but here's the problem. <clears throat> they don't understand that the ark is not just a, the ark is not a, a magical, you know, token that just works on its own. In fact, before I ever got to the place in this chapter where I read where I read that she basically says, she she basically says exactly that they had turned the ark into an idol. Before I ever got there, that's like, oh, I don't know, two pages from, from now or a page and a half from now. By the way, never mind the little dog barking in the background. <laughs> um, I knew, I, I could see exactly what was happening. You can just, you can see it in the text, right? They go to get the ark, like the ark itself has some power. The ark itself has some virtue. And I literally have the thought in my mind, don't they know that the ark is just a box? It's just a box. It was constructed by people. The ark has no virtue, no value in itself. You could see where this was going, right? And basically, this is idolatry. It's idolatry, turning even the things of Yahweh into tokens or symbols that supposedly possess power in themselves while they were living in disregard and rebellion against God disregard to and rebellion against God. And so you could see that that's where it was going. Here's what I wrote down. Yahweh made the ark special and holy. The ark itself did not make Israel special and holy. And there is a lesson in here for us. The forms of religion, even having a Bible, scripture itself, the forms of religion, going to church, singing songs, doesn't mask rebellion, doesn't mask disobedience, doesn't mask cherishing iniquity in our heart. In fact, she quotes that here. It says, uh, as the shattered and disheartened force returned to their encampment, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us uh, before the Philistines? 
Well, they don't understand that what's going on here, again, is that Yahweh is not like the other gods, and the ark is not just some token. It's not an idol. They are regarding iniquity in their heart. They're cherishing iniquity in their heart nationally, and so the ark is going to be of no good to them. Similarly with us, just going through the forms of prayer or the, the forms of religion or the rudiments of religion, whether it's prayer or singing or even reading, if our heart's not being transformed, if we're not having the experience of repentance, well, then even these things can become kind of idolatrous. We take the token to be the substance when the token is just a symbol. And she makes that point repeatedly. The ark was a symbol. It was a symbol. Um, one thing that I thought was very interesting, paragraph on page 721, 584 of the original, begins, the Philistines looked upon the ark as the God of Israel. Ah, that's what, that's what the Philistines thought. They just thought, oh, the ark is an idol, like our idols. So they looked upon it like it was the God, and this is a key point. You know what I wrote in my margin? Well, so did Israel. Right? The, the, the Philistines say, oh, this is, uh, this, is, this is their God. Well, Israel behaves in exactly the same way. They're acting like the ark itself is the God. The ark is not. They've totally lost sight of the transcendence and the grandeur and the, the ineffability and the holiness, the otherness of Yahweh. He's not one among many gods. He is the one true God. He is the creator God. I mean, he has said, you will have no other gods before me. Why? Because the gods are non-gods. And that's been lost sight of here. And these tokens and these symbols, even tokens and symbols given by Yahweh himself, are now removed from their original context <clears throat> and become idol, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> become idolized. And maybe we should just say a word about that. Symbols are only significant in a religious context in so far as they retain their original God-given meaning. And so you take, for example, the temple itself. Jesus goes into the temple, he overturns all the tables and says, get this stuff out of here. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You've taken all the symbols, the symbol of the house itself, the sanctuary, the symbol of the sacrifices, the symbol of all of the, the, the structure, the architecture of the house, and you've, you've denuded it of meaning. Circumcision was a symbol. It was a sign given back in Acts uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 16 and 17, as a symbol of not trusting to self, not trusting to the flesh, not trusting to your own works and ability, but trusting totally to the promise of Yahweh. Well, once symbolism, excuse me, I'm speaking so fast. Once circumcision loses its symbolism, then Paul understood and, and Jesus understood, but Paul especially, as the, the uh, message began to go to the Gentile world, that once the symbol has lost its originally embedded and intentioned meaning, the symbol is meaningless. Okay, symbols can't save us, and tokens can't save us. It's only God that can save us, and this is lost sight of here. One thing that's quite fascinating, and I don't know if you noticed this, but almost every time the ark, or in fact, I think there's actually a sermon in this, a really good sermon, almost every time the ark arrives somewhere, people are rejoicing, people are shouting, people are cheering, Right? So when the ark arrives here at the field of battle, there was a, a shout so mighty, so strong, so enthusiastic, it says that the earth shook. Okay, well, all of that enthusiasm cannot mask rebellion. Let me say that again. All of that enthusiasm for the token or the symbol of God's presence, if it's absent the actual presence of God, all of that enthusiasm does nothing. 
It does exactly nothing. You can rejoice, you can scream, you can shout, you can carry on, but if we're cherishing iniquity in our, in our hearts and we're not complying with the conditions of the covenant and of being God's covenant people, enthusiasm does nothing for us. It might feel good, it might make you feel really energized, but it doesn't do anything. In fact, it actually serves to deceive you into thinking that something is happening that's not happening. And if it feels like maybe I'm making some kind of oblique references here to some worship services, I am. And by the way, I'm all for, as I said just a couple days ago, I'm all for uninhibited and enthusiastic worship of Yahweh. Amen. But all of that worship, all of those songs, all of the hand raising or whatever you're doing, guitar playing, if it's not attended by God himself, it doesn't mean anything. It means less than nothing because it's actually deceptive. It actually tricks us into thinking that something is happening that's not happening. Right, a, a, a grand revival of godliness, a grand revival of religion may not be the same as a grand revival of godliness. In fact, revivals of godliness, as we'll see in the story of Elijah uh, on Mount Carmel in our next book, all of the enthusiasm, all of the energy doesn't mean anything. A revival of godliness might be humble, it might be quiet, it might not even be attended by any sort of overt signs of joyous celebration and enthusiasm. It can be, but it's not necessary. And so when the ark is sort of being shuttled around here, whether it's coming to the front lines of battle, they're like, woohoo, woo, the ark, yeah, the ark, we've got it. It's like the rabbit's foot. It's like the lucky charm. It's the token or the talisman. Yeah, nah. And then when the ark is taken to the Philistines, and I don't remember if the text actually says this, but you get the idea that there's this celebration as well. Like now we've got the power, not only of our God, Dagon, but combined with the power of Yahweh. Woohoo, it's gonna be great. Well, then when the ark comes back, when it's placed on the ox cart and it arrives back in, I think it originally arrives back in uh, Beth Shemesh, the people are like, woohoo, the ark, this is amazing, and they offer a sacrifice. But they're so inattentive to and unaware of what the ark symbolizes that they actually take the covering off of the ark, which even, she says, the Philistines didn't dare to do, and they look inside and 70 of them were struck dead immediately because they think, here again, that enthusiasm covers a multitude of sins. No, enthusiasm doesn't cover anything. Enthusiasm is a wonderful, awesome thing. I mean, I'm enthusiastic. I'm, I'm upbeat. I love celebration and rejoicing and happiness and, and, you know, uninhibited worship before God. Amen and amen. But all of that counts for exactly nothing. The great big fat zero, the goose egg, if it's not attended with actual connection with Yahweh, with the presence of God by his spirit. So the ark was just a token to them, and she says as much. I, you could see where this was going long before she ever said it. If you just read the narrative, you'd be like, oh yeah, they've idolized the ark. They've tokenized the ark. They've missed it. And so uh, jump down to the bottom of that page. The most terrifying calamity that could occur had befallen Israel. They were soundly defeated. Not just 4,000, but 30,000 are defeated on the field of battle. The Ark of God had been captured. It was in the possession of the enemy. Unthinkable, unimaginable, incomprehensible. The glory had indeed departed from Israel when the symbol, underlined, I actually put a big box around it, the symbol of the abiding presence and power of Yahweh was removed from the midst of them. That's the key. It's a symbol. It's a sign. And the symbol and the sign do not have embedded within them God because God 
the one true God, the infinite, eternal, illimitable God of Scripture, cannot be contained within any sign or symbol or object or temple. This is the point, right? Remember when God spoke to Moses and then Moses spoke to Israel, he said, hey, let's be clear about this. You never saw a, sign, you never saw a form, you never saw an image, so you can't make anything, not a calf, not an ox, not a falcon. You can't make anything that captures the essence of God or of Yahweh. But the Israelites here began to think that the symbol was the substance. They elevated the symbol as the substance, and they were soundly defeated. And we will be too if we elevate the forms of religion, the, en the enthusiasm of religion, and we think that that's going to mask having our hearts humble before God, rending our hearts and not our garments, and coming before God with sincerity and, and repentance, repentance and humility. Come on now, turning the page. Um, and I just wrote this at the top of the page. Before I read, before I read what she says, this is what I wrote. Israel had made the ark into an idol. That's what I said. She goes on to say here, um, top of page 722, this is uh, 585, last two sentences in that paragraph that we were just on the page before, but now it had brought no victory. It had brought no victory. It had not proved a defense on this occasion, and there was mourning throughout Israel. Next paragraph. They had not realized that their faith was only a nominal faith. Nominal comes from the same, it, the word means in name, like denomination, the name of something. Nominal means only in name. So they had faith in Yahweh only in name, right? They didn't have actual heartfelt, sincere faith in Yahweh. They weren't complying with the conditions of the covenant. They weren't abiding by Torah. And so guess what? It doesn't do them any good, right? All of the symbols, and she goes on to say here, it had lost its power to prevail with God. The law of God contained in the ark was also a symbol. Now, this is incredible. Not only is the ark a symbol, right? She basically, she actually calls it a common box. She literally just says it was a common box. Where does she say that? Did I miss that? Okay, if, I've, if I haven't missed it, it'll come up here. Where is that? Symbol, symbol, line. Huh. I thought I just knew right where it was. Shouts of joy. These might, I thought I had underlined it, but I guess I hadn't. Uh, oh yeah, there it is. Little more than a common box right in front of me. Of course, of course. I was having a man look, right? It's the same kind of look that I have when I go to Violetta and I say, Violetta, is there any salsa? And she says, yes, it's in the fridge. And I'm holding the refrigerator door open. And I say, where is it? I can't see it anywhere. And uh, she says, it's on the top shelf, right at the front. I'm staring right at it. <laughs> She calls it a man look, and she's she's not wrong. At least maybe we could call it a David look. I don't know if other men are like this, but but it's right there in front of me. She says it was little more than a common box. They looked to the ark as the idolatrous nations look to their gods. Before I ever read that sentence, I knew where this was going. And I wrote, Israel had made the ark into an idol. Right? They had made the ark into an idol. She says not only was the ark a symbol, she says the law itself was a symbol. The tablets were a symbol, which is remarkable because remember that the tablets were particularly sacred in that, you know, they were written by the finger, those are the words of God written by the finger of God. So if even that can be a symbol that points to something greater, points to the substance, yeah, amazing.
So a little more than a common box, they look to the Ark as the idolatrous nations look to their gods, as if it possessed in itself the elements of power and salvation. They transgressed the law it contained, for their very worship of the Ark led to formalism. Underline that word there, formalism, root word form, right? Formalism. She says, formalism, hypocrisy, and idolatry. Their sin had separated them from God, and he could not give them the victory until they had repented and forsaken their iniquity. So formalism here, the root word form, going through the motions of religion, the ceremonies of religion, the rites of religion. And this is not something that is only known to and in ancient Israel. It can be known to us in modern circumstances and situations. The forms of singing worship songs, the forms of getting on your knees. Getting on your knees is a symbol. This morning, I got on my knees before God. It's a thing I do in the morning. I, I go immediately to my knees. I get on my knees. But even getting on your knees is just a symbol, right? There's no virtue. There's no value. In fact, one of the key words that Ellen White's going to use in this chapter is the word valueless, valueless, which will come in a few pages. In fact, I'll just read it here. Without the grace of Christ, the outward forms of religion were valueless to ancient Israel. So if you bend your knees, but you don't bend your heart, your attitude, your actual spirit before God, the bending of the knees does nothing. It's a form. Now, if you bend the knees and you, you allow the symbol to have all of its pregnant meaning, then the symbol becomes powerful. The ark was powerful. Circumcision was powerful. The Sabbath is powerful. The temple was powerful. Kneeling is powerful. Singing is powerful. Only insofar as we associate them, that's another important word in this chapter, as we associate them with the substance, with the thing that the symbol is referencing, pointing to. And so we have to be so careful as Christians that we're not elevating the form and missing the substance. And she says that right here. She says the very worship of the ark led to formalism, hypocrisy, and idolatry. And then this is where in the next paragraph, I'm still on 722, this is where she says, um, the Lord does not regard the request of those who cherish iniquity in the heart. And then she quotes Proverbs 28, 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law. Those are the actual words of God. That's the heart of God. That's the character of God, the substance, that is. Even his prayer is an abomination because the form, you think, whoa, that's intense. Prayer is an abomination. Yeah, but don't hear what that's not saying. What, what that is saying is that if you think that prayer, prayer itself, just the, the saying of words, blah, 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 words, all the right religious words, flowery words, yet that's an abomination to God because you're basically reducing God to an idol thinking, and Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, the heathen think they'll be heard. You know, don't, don't use vain repetitions. Don't just keep saying words because the saying of words reduces God to an idol that must be purchased in order for you to get traction with him, you have to, you know, put your time card. No. So it's not saying if you sincerely, earnestly come to God in prayer and you say, God, I committed that sin. I wish I hadn't. I feel so terrible. My heart is, you know, overwhelmed with guilt and shame and please forgive me. That's not an abomination. That's a beautiful thing before the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's not something you do once. You don't confess your sins one time, right? If we, can, if we confess our sins because we fail, we fall, we make mistakes, we repent, we turn to the Lord, we open up Psalm 51, we read it, we cry through it, we pray. I've done this myself many times. 
open up to Psalm 51 again, and I'm always happy that it's there. Because I look at Psalm 50, and I look at Psalm 52, and I say, Lord Jesus, please let Psalm 51 be there, and it's always there. And when it's there, you, I, I open it up. I've done this many times in my life, and other passages of Scripture too, but I especially love Psalm 51 for this. And you read through it, and you pray through it, and you, you meditate through it. Well, that's not an abomination to God. That's a beautiful thing to God. That's the turning of the heart to God. But just to think that you can say some rubric, some prayer, some formula, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, you go pray your, you know, Hail Marys or you do your Our Fathers. You just repeat them, repeat them, repeat them, which is what Catholicism later did. They effectively paganized these, these beautiful things, right? Uh, the Lord's Prayer, for example. There's no, there's no value in that. You can pray the Lord's Prayer a thousand times. It doesn't do anything for you. This idea of automatic grace, that just if the mouth and the lips say a thing, that that has some magical supernatural power. No, it does not. No, it does not. And you will often have to repent. So don't, don't, don't confuse vain repetitions with repenting repeatedly. You will never get to the place where you're done repenting. Yup, there it was. There it was. I, I did it. I repented for the last time. Oh, but now you have to repent again because you're prideful and you think you're done repenting. So, so don't, don't confuse multiple repentances with vain repetitions. What's being spoken of here in Proverbs 28.9 is not a sincere repentance. It's a vain repetition. Big difference. Um, now here's an interesting thought, just a, a little bit of conjecture, but I'm going to throw it out there. I want to see what you guys think. When Eli, right, because the word comes back that the ark is taken and you have to ask yourself this question, Eli, who is the high priest? Eli is the high priest. Yes, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas were also priests, but Eli's the big dog. He's the high priest. He had the most influence and authority in the whole of Israel. Here's a question for you. Why did he let them take the ark? He should have said no. He should have put his foot down. He should have said absolutely not. And so I'm suggesting here that this might be an instance, and, and I think the text suggests it. I wouldn't say this, you know, absolutely, but I think the text is suggesting that part of what's happening here is that he once again was indulgent for his sons and the others in Israel's bad ideas. Oh, we got a great idea. We'll take the ark. Well, Eli was smart enough to know that the ark itself didn't possess any value. It was a symbol, right? It, it didn't have some kind of magical, you know, idol-type power. So when his sons come and the others in Israel, the warriors in Israel come, the leaders in Israel, the generals, whatever they are, they come and they're like, yo, we want to bring the ark, he says, over my dead body. This ark is not going out of this temple. The only way the ark is going out of this temple is if you slay me, because it is not going to happen on my watch under any circumstances. And it's at least possible that that would have dissuaded them and they would have gone, okay, all right, yeah, we don't want to lay our hand on the Lord's anointed, right? And if they had slain him and said, we're going to take the ark anyway, well, then they would have known they weren't going to have the blessing of Yahweh, number one. And number two, Eli would have died, at least a brave and courageous man, standing for what's right. But it seems at least possible to me, perhaps even likely, that when the sons came, Eli was like, well, no, you really shouldn't take it. Oh, yeah, Dad, but we want to take it. This is going to help us in battle. Well, well I, I guess if you want to. 
I mean, couldn't this be another example of Eli acquiescing to his sons? It seems like it to me. I mean, I don't think you can say it definitively, but it's, to my eyes, to my reading, very suggestive. Um, okay, let's uh, hustle along here a little bit. The ark is captured. We've already mentioned, I think twice in my prayer, then I mentioned it again, that Phinehas, who she says actually was a woman who feared the Lord, which is hallelujah. There have been many a godly woman married to many an ungodly man. Uh, the reverse, of course, is also true. But, uh, you know, she's, she says, Ichabod, the, the, the word that the ark has been captured, gets there. Eli falls off of his chair. He breaks his neck. He dies. Um, it's just such an inglorious, tragic, ignoble, humiliating, terrible story. And so much of the Old Testament is this way. Like, even the good news is always couched in the context of massive covenantal failure massive rebellion. Like even when you get those little, like you take, you know, the incredible story, the amazing story of Elijah on Mount Carmel and the signal victory that was won there. Woohoo! Yeah, but it's all set against the backdrop of Israel's rampant apostasy. So this is the story of the Old Testament, friends. Uh, this is where we're at. After we get out of the, the glory and grandeur, basically of Genesis, which even Genesis has its significant valleys, and then the Exodus experience after the death of Moses, it's just, it's just one long decline. Like you're looking at a stocks chart, right? And you're trying to decide if you're going to invest, you know, and you're looking and, and it goes down and then there's a little up and then it's down and then there's a little up and then there's a big down and then there's a little up. Yeah, you can look and say, oh, there are some ups there, but all of those ups are set in the context of a giant down. That's the Old Testament. Until, hallelujah, Jesus arrives and then it goes, straight up. And we'll, we'll talk about that in some other time, point, but that's the, that's the idea here, is that Jesus becomes Adam, the second Adam. Jesus becomes Israel, the true Israel. And then all of those Old Testament promises, all of, uh, what does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. So Jesus wraps up, he embodies all of Israel's failures and foibles and faults and follies, and he succeeds where they failed, he wins where they lost, he has victory where they were defeated. Woohoo! This is why Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, right? But, but you have this, that stock, you know, graph is just going down, and yes, there are some ups, but even again, the ups are couched in the context of these terrible defeats. And so the woman cries out, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Exactly. The glory is departed. And it wasn't departed because the ark was taken. That's even a misunderstanding. I mean, that's tragic and terrible. But the glory was departed in the sense that the ark was perceived by Israel as possessing significance and substance in itself. That's the point. Um, and here's a, here's a great point. How about this one? How about this one? It was thought, it was thought that if the ark was brought to the front of the battle, that, that just like Joshua in the original conquest of Canaan, that they would go marching forward and march around Jericho and everything's falling and it's all going swimmingly well. Yeah, nah, because write this down. And I wrote it down in my, my uh, margin here. God's past victories don't count for today. God's past victories don't count for today. If God worked powerfully 
and victoriously in the past on behalf of his people, that's because they were complying with the conditions of his blessing, living in covenant faithfulness to him, or at least, if not in total covenant faithfulness, in repentance before him, right? But we can't just go extract and uh, extrapolate some past victory and think, oh, we're going to do the same thing in some formulaic, you know, uh, recitation of what they did, oh, we'll take the ark, we'll put it at the front of battle, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, no, because God's past victories don't count for today if you're not complying with the conditions or at least humbling your heart before him. Okay, so then the, the and I'm not going to spend much time on this because I want to get to some other stuff that I thought was far more interesting, but I'll just say a couple quick words. They the, the Philistines take the ark, they think it's going to be, again, double the power, double the energy, double the, you know, might in battle. That's not how it works out. They're, they're stricken with these tumors, and um, they, you know, they, they like shuffle the ark around a little bit, and they realize, um, as, as she says here, that the ark was a great burden and a heavy curse, and so they're like, yeah, we got to get this thing out of here, and it's not a little humorous. I mean, it's quite funny that, you know, when the ark is placed in immediate proximity inside of the temple of Dagon to the idol of Dagon, Dagon has fallen over. He has to be set up by the priests you know, which should alert you to the folly of idolatry. If you have to set up, if you have to stand the idol up, because the idol can't stand on its own, it can't breathe on its own, it can't protect itself, it can't defend itself. This is what happened with Gideon. Remember when Gideon went and destroyed his father Joash's little sim, uh, you know, uh, image there, and they were all really mad at Gideon, and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to get mad at Gideon here. This was our own fault for erecting this stupid idol. If Baal can't defend himself, let Baal defend himself. Let Baal plead for himself. And remember, that became kind of a little proverb, a little joke almost. And they started to refer to Gideon colloquially as Jeru Baal. Let Baal plead. And that's the point. That's what God is driving at here, right? You put the ark in the temple with Dagon, and Dagon can't even lift himself up. You, this is the folly of idolatry. Idolatry is... is insulting both to God and to human beings. It's insulting to God because God cannot be contained by any material symbol, and it's insulting to human beings because God has already imaged himself on the earth, but he hasn't imaged himself in wood or metal or stone. God has imaged himself in flesh and blood in human beings who possess intelligence and morality and volition. You. So when we craft, create, fashion something and set it up as an idol, it's doubly insulting. It's insulting to the one true God, and it's insulting to us. It's dehumanizing to us. It's demeaning to us. It's so stupid. And this is why, you know, Dagon's fallen over, and his, you know, parts of him are breaking off, and they're like, we got to get this guy out of here. We got to get rid of these tumors. Got to get rid of this. So they send the ark back. I think it's kind of an LOL moment. It reminded me of years ago when I was in Portugal, Violetta and I went to one of the big churches there, uh, Fatima, in Portugal. And there's this giant church there and a big altar, and this is where the, the Fatima miracles, um, you know, purportedly took place. And as you're walking on the way to Fatima, there are all of these street vendors, and these street vendors are selling, like, votive candles. Some of them are just a regular, like a, like a normal-shaped candle. But other candles were, like, in the shape of an ear, in the shape of even a breast. You could buy a candle in the shape of a woman's breast, the shape of a hand, the shape of a foot, the shape of a heart. Well, these were like if you had heart problems, if you had trouble of hearing, if you had breast cancer or some other problems, you, you, you could literally burn these candles before God in the, in the church there in Fatima, 
And this was like a way of saying, I need help with my ears. I need help with my breast. I need help with my foot. I need help with my hands. That's a thing. It's an actual thing that's happening right now. It's happening today. Today, you could go to Fatima, Portugal, and you could go buy a breast-shaped candle, a foot-shaped candle. That's a thing. So that's what they do here. They, they're like, hey, we've got to send the ark back. So they make these like golden little tumors, make these golden little tumors, and they put it on the little cart. Nobody wants to drive that cart. So they're like, well, we'll just let the cows drive the cart. So the cows drive the cart, and they arrive back in Israel. They come to Beth Shemesh. And what I regard to be as an act of considerable injustice, the, the cows were sacrificed. I was like, that doesn't sit well with me. You know, I didn't like that. You know, these are the cows. Like, the only people in the whole story, apart from Samuel, that are faithful are these two cows that return the ark back to Yahweh, and they are summarily sacrificed. I thought, man, that's that's not right. That's unfair. Those cows should have been placed in the best pasture. They should have been given the best food, and they should have been left alone to live a long, happy life. Let some other animals be sacrificed, but those cows were just about the only ones in the whole story, apart from Samuel, that did anything resembling the right thing, right? Yeah, that's right. Somebody says the cows were at least the ones listening. Yeah, why the cows? Yeah, people are saying the same thing as me. I'm like, well, leave the cows alone. Um, okay, top of page 726. We are motoring along. Um, this is uh, 588. It says, they still hated the God of Israel. This was the Philistines, though compelled by overwhelming judgments to submit to his authority. Thus sinners, and I thought this was a great application by Ellen White. Thus sinners may be convinced by the judgments of God that it is in vain to contend against him. They may be compelled to submit to his power while at heart they rebel against his control. Such submission cannot save the sinner. The heart must be yielded to God, must be subdued by divine grace, before man's repentance can be accepted. Great point. People can say, and people will say at the end of time, these are judgments from God. These are judgments from God. Clearly, these are divine judgments. Obviously, this story is just filled with divine judgments, but she's making this great point. Simply acknowledging that a judgment is from God has no merit. It gets you no purchase or traction with God. It's the, it's the response to the judgment the humbling your heart before God, coming before God in sincerity and in repentance and in humility, that is where the traction is, right? And I thought that was a great point. Um, wow, there's so much good on this page here. She talks about um, 10,000. Oh, I got to read this paragraph. This paragraph is too good. The next paragraph there, 726, begins, how great is the long suffering of God? What time did I start? Okay, okay, we've got a few more minutes. How great is the long-suffering of God toward the wicked? The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding of Israel had alike, which I thought was a fascinating word, enjoyed the gifts of his providence. Both the Philistines and God and the Israelites had enjoyed the gifts of his providence. This is what Jesus means when he says that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust, the sunshine on the just and the unjust. So I underlined the word alike there because I thought it was a fascinating use of that word right there in that situation because these are the enemies of Israel. They've captured the ark, and yet they too had been the beneficiaries, right? They had enjoyed the gifts of his providence. Amazing. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the way of ungrateful, rebellious men. 
every blessing spoken spoke to them of the giver, capital G, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. And friends, that's how God's judgments work. Very often, God's judgments are not God actively imposing a sentence of judgment upon his people, of of punishment upon his people. It's the removing of his protective hand so that the natural consequences of the circumstance and situation will out will play out. Remember, this is what happened with the serpents, the fiery serpents that came up, bit, 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 Israel. Those serpents were there all along. Those dangerous snakes, those adders were there all along, right? The, uh, not adders, vipers, the saw-scaled vipers. Yeah, yeah, the, the protecting hand of Yahweh had been over them, but when they forsook Yahweh, the protective hand is removed, and then the judgment comes. And so let me read it again. He removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works, in his warnings, his counsels, his reproofs of his word, and thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. And it reminded me of that great all-time statement. You might remember this one. I've said it before, and I'm just going to quickly quote it. This reminded me of this. Page 576, 471 of the original. This is one of my all-time statements. God speaks to his people in blessings bestowed. That's his native tongue. It's his mother tongue. And when they are not appreciated, he speaks to them in blessings removed, that they may be led to see their sins and return to him with all their heart. God's native tongue is to bless. God's second language is to remove blessings, to allow judgments, so that the heart will be turned back to him so that he can speak in his native tongue, which is blessings. Bam! Um, a lot of goodness here. Uh, so the ark makes its way back. Here again, as we've already noted, when they see it, she says, they saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Woohoo! Enthusiasm! The ark idol is back. And you know, and I say the ark idol with a little bit of fear, even when I say that, but... Oh, uh, somebody's asking what page. So the all-time statement that I just read is page 576 of Types and Symbols. And the original there is um, 471. God speaks to his people in blessings bestowed, and when these are not appreciated, he speaks to them in blessings removed. 471, 576 of Types and Symbols. Okay, so they rejoice, and the ark idol, you know that they're treating it like it's an idol because they kind of want to see what's under the hood. So they take off the coverings, they look inside, they're treating it like it's got some magical power. Ooh, what gives it this magic? Nothing gives it any magical power. It's the presence of Yahweh. It's the presence of God, the infinite, eternal, illimitable, ineffable, invisible God of the whole earth. And when they violated the very clear, I mean, even the ark was so sacred when it was properly understood that only the high priest got to see it and stand before it one time per year on the 10th day of the seventh month. So you're not just going to go up and casually, haphazardly take the coverings off and have a look inside. It's exactly what happened on, you know, Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was talking to the kids about this yesterday at Arise, right? But you might remember when they look inside, their faces melt and it's all, you know, it's a bit grotesque and graphic, right? Spielberg had took some liberties there, but the idea is, is you don't just get to look inside of the ark. It's not a magic symbol. So they open the ark, turning the page. Uh, she says they regarded the ark with superstition and fear. 
So then Samuel, at long last, Samuel comes and he is installed as a prophet. Samuel starts traveling from town to town. I mean, he's gone from boyhood to manhood because you can imagine, we don't know exactly how old Samuel was here, but you get the feeling he's young, late teens, early 20s, right? He's young, maybe middle teens. I don't know exactly how old he is in this situation, but he's young. And you get the idea here that, that he, in the absence of Eli, he is not just the idea, he's the new guy in Israel. He was already priest and prophet, and then now he's installed as judge. And the reason that you have this incredible consolidation of all of these offices in one man is there weren't enough godly men. That's the point. You got to have one guy occupying three offices. It's a little bit like a church where you have, you know, one person that's doing like five things because there's not enough people to do the things. So you might be thinking, oh, this is really great news. Samuel's a type of Christ, you know? Jesus is priest, and Jesus is prophet, and Jesus is judge slash ruler slash king. Oh, he's a, he's a Christ-like figure. Well, yeah, that's good news. But again, that good news is set in the context of, bed, of bad news because the bad news is, well, who else was, I mean, couldn't there have been priests? And couldn't there have been prophets? And couldn't there have been a judge? They all have to be consolidated into one man because there are so few faithful in the whole of Israel. And I've just got to read this paragraph, 728, 590 of the original, begins the Israelites as a nation. And Samuel basically starts traveling around as a kind of revivalist evangelist, teaching the people what's really going on, to disabuse their minds of these idolatrous notions and superstitious practices, and their own actual idolatry, right? Uh, as we'll see here in just a second. So the Israelites as a nation continued in a state of irreligion and idolatry. And as a punishment, they remained in subjection to the Philistines. The Philistines are going to be a thorn in the flesh of Israel for a long time. Right? Uh, During this time, Samuel visited the cities and villages throughout the land, seeking to turn the hearts of the people to the God of their fathers. And his efforts were not without good results. Right? There was some education. There was some calls to repentance. There was some instruction. After suffering the the oppression of their enemies for 20 years, the Israelites lamented after the Lord. Samuel counseled them, quote, quoting now, If you return to Yahweh with all your hearts and put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, those were these idols, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. Here we see that practical piety, heart religion, was taught in the days of Samuel as taught by Christ when he was upon the earth. Without the grace of Christ, the outward forms, underline it, forms like the word formal earlier, the outward forms of religion were valueless to ancient Israel. They are the same to modern Israel, to us. Bam. Next paragraph, there is need today of such a revival of true heart religion as was experienced by ancient Israel. Repentance is the first step that must be taken by all who would return to God. No one can do this work for someone else, for another. We must individually humble our souls before God to put away our idols. When we have done all that we can do, the Lord will manifest his salvation. She says then, God accepted their repentance. God is so gracious, so kind, so patient, so long-suffering, so willing to receive that even after all of this folly, after all of this foolishness, after all of this failure, God says, yeah, I'll take you back. 
Love to have you back. Welcome back. So glad you're here. And then we come to my all-time statement in this chapter, and I think it's the sort of 10th all-time statement. In fact, let me just quickly quote them. I keep saying that. I might as well just quote them. How many, how many all-time statements do I have so far? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. This is the eleventh all-time statement for me. And it's on page 730, 591 of the original. Paragraph begins, the Israelites had stood in silent awe, but it's down toward the middle of that paragraph. And it begins, for nations, and this is all time, all time. For nations as well as for individuals, the path of obedience to God is the path of safety and happiness, while that of transgression leads only to disaster and defeat. That's worth memorizing. The path of obedience is the path of happiness. It's the path of freedom. It's the path of safety. And disobedience, again, we've said this already, results in or has the consequences of judgments and eventually death, right? God's native tongue is to speak in blessings bestowed. His second language is to speak in blessings removed. And so I'm going to read it again. For nations as well as for individuals, for David Asherah, David's path of obedience to God is the path of his safety and his happiness, while that of David's transgression will lead David only to disaster and defeat. Correct, correct, correct. And so Samuel then in the last paragraph there, um, then the occasion, that the occasion might never be forgotten, Samuel set up between Mizpah and Shen a great stone as a memorial. He called the name of it Ebenezer, the stone of help saying to the people, thus far has the Lord helped us. Ebenezer literally means a stone of assistance, a stone of aid, a stone of help, and Israel needed help, and David needs help, and you need help. So we need to, we need to set up our Ebenezer stones at various points, milestones, junctures along our life's journey. Set up an Ebenezer. Set it up and say, God, I need your help. And I'll sing you that song, maybe, if we have a little bit of time at the end. Let's go to our rubric. So, uh, the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What was the point of this chapter? For me, it was to tell the tragic and unthinkable story of the loss of the ark from Israel and of the neglectful circumstances that led to it. To warn us. The person. Well, how about this? God is not a token or an idol. He is the living God, the one true God that transcends all symbols and depictions of him. Amen. God is not an idol. He is not a symbol. He is not a token. God is God. He's the infinite, eternal, illimitable, invisible, ineffable God of the universe, the one true God, Yahweh the God who is altogether unlike every other deity or God. That's what the word holy means, different, other. Okay, the prayer, how do we pray this chapter? God, teach me how to repent. Teach me and help me to give my whole heart to you. Help me to never elevate religious forms over you and your incomparable love, goodness, and mercy. Amen.
Don't settle for formalism when you can have the substance, God himself. Um, how do we practice this chapter? How about this one? Repent and turn to God with all my heart. Repent and turn to God with all my heart. Hey, Jennifer Jill Schwerzer, I love you. Great to see you on here. I've been thinking about you. Love you so much. It feels like when I'm in Australia, I'm just so far away that it doesn't occur to me to just like I'm in a different bubble over here. And so great to see you. Love you, girl. So how do we practice this chapter, friends? We repent. We don't just confess. We don't just acknowledge. We turn. We turn and return. And that's my promise. My promise is Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. Return to me, and I will return to you. I also threw in Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, and renew a right spirit within me. And so my word, which Ellen White uses some 10 times in this chapter, is the word heart. Heart. I don't want a valueless religion, a merely symbolic or formal religion. I want a heart religion. I miss you too, Jen. All right, what was your word? Okay, somebody's inviting me to come to New York. The answer is yes, I will come. Just invite me. Okay, Cassandra says symbol. Here we go. Hazel says judgments. Lizanne says authentic. Katie says yielded. Whoa, we got a lot here. Reproof, revival, return, repent, renounce, redeemed, substance, repentance, forms, judgment, return. Victor Mills says, let's go. <laughs> My sons say that all the time. Cassandra's inviting me to New York. I would love to come. New York looks like a great place to visit. I've only been there once before. Jennifer says, heart religion. Amen. Same page. Formal. Id oh, formal. Great word. Idols. Bypass. Hannah had to go to bed. Her word was Ebenezer. Well, what's your word, Sylvia? Ebenezer. Orange? Orange is your word? I don't understand that at all. Sorry. Warnings. Ebenezer. Blessings. Somebody says, come to New Zealand. Man, I, I would love to go to New Zealand. Invite me. I've been there probably, I don't know, 10 times. Love to go back. Strength. Judgment. Adam says, what chapter was this? Chapter 57. Chapter 57 in Patriarchs and Prophets. Yeah, Adam, you missed a great presentation. The good news is, is that it's going to be up in just a few minutes on both, well, up in a few minutes on Instagram and then later on YouTube. Ichabod, great word porter. Um, heart, that's my word, heart. All right, should I sing you a quick song? My favorite verse, actually, it's one of my favorite verses. I love every verse, but I'll, I'll sing a song here real quick. Oh. My new guitar, I keep buying these guitars. I can't stop. Here I raise my Ebenezer, if hither by thy help I've come, and I hope I, thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home, Jesus, I 
Amen. Beautiful song. Let's pray together. God is amazing, and he wants us to turn to him with all of our hearts, not just formally, not just in some formulaic or mechanical way, but to truly give our heart to him. Father, teach us how to do this. Father in heaven, we love you. We turn to you. We, we come with the promise in our hand that if we return to you, you will return to us. And Father, in a way, you don't return to us because you never left us. We left you. And so, Father, help us to learn these lessons and to heed these warnings found in the Old Testament. Father, may we not read these as ancient, dusty, old passages in an antiquated book, but may we read it as the message that you have for us, for our heart in this situation. Father, forgive us where we have substituted a real connection with you, with forms and ceremonies and enthusiasm. Father, give us the symbols and give us the enthusiasm and the joy. But Father, may it be the substance and not merely the shadow. We love you and thank you. Bring us back tomorrow. Same time, same place is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.